Father, as we recall in our mind's eye reading the scriptures, in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet sees the temple vision, he remarks upon your glory out of sheer horror at his sin. A revelation of you, an unveiled sense where the beauty of your holiness is on display before the observer can only remind him that he's least of all worthy to stand in the presence of a mighty God. Yet there was redemption for Isaiah pictured in that coal which you took from the fire and touched his lips. And in this act, picturing sanctification, picturing redemption, picturing atonement, picturing the sovereign work of a holy God to render his servant able to stand in his presence without deserving and receiving the hellfire of sin's worthy judgment. God, today, as much as we have beheld you in these songs, and as much as we will behold you in your word, and it makes us cry out the same, we are not worthy of the presence of an almighty and holy God. Nevertheless, the coal of Jesus' blood, as it were, has touched our souls. We recognize in last week's service as we look to the table of our Lord that therein was sufficient atonement for our sins that we might come before your presence unashamed, come before your presence boldly, approaching the throne of grace through the veil, having our high priest lead the way. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide us in these scriptures I pray that you would awaken our ears and our eyes of our understanding to behold the truths. And as we do so, may it bring further conviction of sin, further repentance and faith, and further knowledge of the glory of Christ that we might be changed into that image every day from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. In His name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a precious gift it is to be able to gather together in the name of our Lord and to consider His Scripture together. Would you turn with me to Psalm 110 this morning? As we do so in our Psalm a Month series. The title of this morning's message is Victorious Priest King. Victorious Priest King. We find in Psalm 110 that the future Messiah is revealed in dual office at least as King and Priest. The aim of this morning's message is to glorify Christ, expounding His, you could say, singular pedigree. Singular meaning unique, high, above, absolutely exclusive. Only Jesus has it. Pedigree meaning the history of the genealogy, what lies behind Him, both what He has accomplished and the process and the family line and the events of history that led up to His arrival. Psalm 110 glorifies Christ, expounding His singular pedigree. And it glorifies Him as a victorious priest king. And this morning, it will cer certainly, it will surely nourish our souls to realize the, the uh, implications of these truths from Psalm 110 today. And we'll endeavor in the course of this message to make applications for our hour, even as these words gave such confidence, boldness, and encouragement to their original author, namely David, himself in the line, himself in the pedigree of the Messiah. With your Bible open, and as you're able, out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand for the reading of the Scriptures today? Again, with your Bible open to Psalm 110, listen as the Holy Word of the Lord is proclaimed in your hearing this day. Psalm 110, under the title, A Psalm of David, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me remind you Psalm 109 and its theme. Psalm 109 is, could be categorized as a psalm of lament, a cry of anguish where the heart is honest in pouring out these feelings of great emotional pain before the Lord. David certainly finds himself in anguish and uses this worshipful anthem psalm, or lament in Psalm 109 to express those deep-set feelings of excruciating difficulty to the Lord. Furthermore, though, in Psalm 109, David prophesies as well. And thus we have in Psalm 109 a picture of the son of David's lament. Psalm 110, though, gives way to a song of triumph. If one is a sad song, a song of lament, the other is a victorious song, a song of triumph. So let us note, first of all, this morning, the providence of God placing Psalm 109 and Psalm 110 back to back. Once again, we see in the beauty of the way the scriptures are organized, that we have a providential, awesome reality here. The prior song, Psalm 109, is a lament addressing the sufferings of the Messiah, and as you recall, his legal appeal through the voice of his forebearer, David. He's crying out for justice by bringing a desire for a covenant lawsuit to hold accountable his accusers and to bring them to justice. And in so doing, he takes on the voice of the lineage of Christ, and we recall the false accusations against Jesus and the suffering he endured in his passion in Psalm 109. Psalm 109, though, is immediately followed by an anthem of sovereign triumph by the same author and inspired by the same person. Jesus, who suffers in 109, is victorious in Psalm 110. And in so doing, this set, these two psalms back to back, take the shape of redemption, do they not? as we've often noted, suffering unto glory. Here is the incarnate work of Christ magnified in worship songs, prophesying God's purposes soon to unfold in history through the royal lineage of the significant son, David. Though brief in word count, only seven verses, Psalm 110 has only seven verses. Though brief in word count, Psalm 110 is immeasurably rich in theme. And as such, I'll admit, I struggled with how to outline my message today. Because Psalm 110 is one of those central passages to the rest of Scripture, and there is so much reference in Scripture to Psalm 110, it's one of the favorite passages quoted by New Testament authors, it's difficult to know exactly where to focus a sermon on its themes. So, in my study, I had about eight possible outlines. I'm going to preach them all for you this morning. No, I'm kidding. I had about eight possible outlines of which I chose one. But I want to give you seven just when in title so that you can, just to illustrate the depth of this psalm and hopefully, if you're so inclined, for further study on your own time. Any of the following, may I submit, 
could, you could find. So a preacher could organize his sermon on Psalm 110 around any of the following outlines and find a treasure trove of riches to draw from each heading. And these are in your written notes if you have a copy in front of you. First of all, the Christology or theology presupposed in Psalm 110. Said another way, what must be true about Jesus in order for Psalm 110 to make sense? What must be true about Jesus in order for Psalm 110 to make sense? An amazing study. Do that on your own time. Number two, what the New Testament references and reveals as to the meaning of this song. So on your own time, you could study what the New Testament references and reveals as to the meaning of Psalm 110. There'll be a few little anecdotes that we'll grab from these in our message today, but we won't even come close to scratching their surface. Number three, features of Christ's kingdom according to Psalm 110. This would be things like right hand, a positional language, footstool, scepter, day of power, priesthood, etc. Features of the kingdom of God according to Psalm 110, a fruitful study. Fourthly, the actions of the persons in Psalm 110. You'll note that there are certain actions, deliberate activities that Yahweh or God the Father he's, uh, enacts. He sends, he says, he swears, and so forth. There's actions by the people of God, be us by application. The people of God willingly volunteer for the king's army. There's actions by the priest king himself. He, sh uh, he shatters, he executes, he drinks, he lifts, etc. Number five. The poetic elements of Psalm 110 and what they illuminate. There's symmetry, there's repetition, there's metaphor, perhaps you could even say riddle. All of these illuminate things. Number six, Psalm 110 connects the dots of redemptive history. You could do a study of Psalm 110, how Yahweh, Melchizedek, David, Jesus, Zion, kingdom are connected. And you could reference from the big picture how Psalm 110 draws a line between these dots, as it were, or events in history of God's sovereign revelation as to His purposes to redeem a people. Now, why did I give you these? Well, this is to illustrate the depth of Psalm 110 and to encourage the hearer, encourage you to further study. Nevertheless, for the purposes of our exposition today, I pray the following heading will suffice. So this is our heading for our outline today. The Son of David is Messiah by virtue of three things revealed in Psalm 110. The son of David. Kids, who is the son of David? That's another name for? Who is the son of David? That's correct. Jesus is Messiah by virtue of his, number one, coronation. So that'd be like crowning ceremony, his ordination as king. Number two, consecration. This would be his ordination as priest. And number three, conquest. This would be the realms and kingdoms conquered by our Lord. The Son of David, Jesus Christ, is Messiah by virtue of, number one, verses one and two, coronation. Number two, consecration, verses three and four. And number three, conquest, verses five and seven. The first speaking of him as king, the second as priest, and finally as victor. This is how you could organize and arrange the thoughts, the themes of Psalm 110 to give us a sense of what David is exalting in his future Messiah as he writes, first of all. The son of David is Messiah by virtue of his coronation, receiving a crown, a ceremony of authoritative granting, conferring kingship and lordship unto him. This happened in the case of Christ. Psalm 110.1, a psalm of David. Listen to the language. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is a complicated verse. It is a complex 
a string of phrases that only make sense if you understand a few things. Let me submit this. Verse 1 is a riddle that is solved by two things, the Incarnation, or Christmas, and also the Trinity. In order to understand verse 1 of Psalm 110, let alone the whole psalm, you must understand Christmas, the Incarnation. God took on flesh, became a man, and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. And you must understand the Trinity. God is one God in three persons. And after you grasp these concepts, Psalm 110 begins to make sense. But until you realize these truths, these theological truths, Psalm 110 will remain an unveiled mystery, or a veiled mystery, I should say. Now, there is one further note of clarification that helps us understand Psalm 110. Let me give it to you. This could be outline number seven, if you will. There's one more possible outline by which you could organize Psalm 110, and I want to submit this in order to grasp the complexity of our psalm. The understanding of this song hinges on who is speaking in the psalm and who he is addressing. So kids, who wrote Psalm 110? We mentioned it already, just a quiz though. Who wrote? That's correct, David. David, the great psalmist, the great magistrate musician, wrote Psalm 110. That is extremely important. The key to understanding it involves who is speaking, David is speaking or singing, and who is he speaking to, who is speaking and who he's addressing. So let me submit the following. David is speaking throughout, yet his primary literary audience changes three times. So number one, he addresses the people in verse one. So as if we're all listening in, all the people of God, all the world, when David says, the Lord says to my Lord, imagine David speaking to you, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, But then the audience changes and verses 2 through 4. At this point, he moves from addressing the people to addressing the Messiah himself. He's addressing Jesus. He's addressing the son of David down the line. He's addressing the great priest king. And, this, and then, thus he begins in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So the Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D. Uh, kids, some of you with a good memory, when we see capital L, O-R-D, what is the name for God in Hebrew that is referred to by that translation? Let me hear it again. Lord, so capital L-O-R-D, what's the word in Hebrew? Here's Yahweh, very good. And that, uh, its technical name is a tetragrammaton, tetra meaning four, gramma, grammar, uh, um, a figure of speech, four Hebrew letters referring to that high holy covenant name of God, revealed first to Moses in the I Am declaration, the burning bush. So, in verse 2, The Lord, Yahweh, or God the Father, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Remember, David is speaking to Jesus Christ, referencing the Lord. Do you see it makes no sense without the Trinity? Unless God is at least two persons, Psalm 110 cannot be understood. Then who is the third audience? This would be verses 5 through 7. The third audience is God the Father. So David speaks to all of us in verse 1. He speaks to the Messiah in verses 2 through 4. He speaks to God the Father in verses 5 through 7, may I submit. In verse 5, for instance, the Lord is at your right hand. So this is lowercase o-r-d. And who is referred to here? God the Son, the priest king. The Lord, that is to say, Jesus is at your right hand. Whose right hand is Jesus at? When he ascended, he was seated at the right hand 
of God the Father, the majesty on high. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, and so forth. So there is a little framework for understanding the characters and the layout of Psalm 110. One more time. Verse 1, David is speaking to all of us. Verses 2 through 4, he's speaking to the Messiah. And verses 5 through 7, he's speaking to God the Father. With me so far? Number one, coronation. The son of David is Messiah by virtue of his coronation, receiving a kingdom, declared king, established as the sovereign, the Lord, the ruler. This we see by royal bloodline, by ascension, and by dominion in our text in verses 1 and 2. First of all, Christ the Lord, the Messiah, He is the Messiah by virtue of His royal bloodline. Turn with me to Matthew 22. None other than Jesus Christ Himself confirms this as He interprets Matthew 22, um, excuse me, Psalm 110 in light of Himself in Matthew 22. So, Matthew 22, verses 41 through 51. This is the ultimate mic drop moment. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. In the context, the Pharisees had been cross-examining. Remember the Pharisees' kids? They thought they were uh, so awesome. They knew more about the Bible than anybody else. And so they're going to trick Jesus. They're going to trip him up. We're going to ask Jesus some really tough questions, and we're going to show that he's not a very impressive person, and he doesn't know half as much as we know about the Hebrew Scriptures. That was their first mistake, assuming Jesus was a novice when it came to the Word. He was the Word. So anyways, they ask him a bunch of cross-examination, specific questions to trip him up. And every single time, like a judo move, Jesus pulls their punch and uses the force of their argument against them. And now we get to the end of this examination, and Jesus is going to give the killer blow rhetorically, right? Now, while the Pharisees, verse 41, were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah, the Anointed One? Whose son is he? They said to him, So kids, let me pose that question to you. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of David. That's correct. Both are true. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He, Jesus, said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You see, Jesus is referencing verbatim Psalm 110. And he's saying we have a curious issue here. Though the Messiah is the son of David, Nevertheless, he's David's Lord. And how do we know this? David said that very thing in Psalm 110. Jesus goes on, verse 45, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Mic drop, verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You see, the Pharisees realized their mistake and a real shocking awareness. They thought they could trip up Jesus, but in reality, he shut them up by the power of his revealed word. And they realized that they had really stepped on a landmine here. This individual was capable of understanding and communicating the scriptures on a level they hadn't even dared to imagine and shuddered to think might be true. Nevertheless, 
in Matthew 22, 41 through 45, for the benefit of those with eyes wide open, we see that Jesus identified the royal bloodline of David as leading to a unique, significant son. You could say it this way, the king's son is his king and the son of God. Follow? David's son is David's king and the son of God. This is a riddle whose, an whose answer is the Trinity and Christmas, as we, as we said before. So how can Jesus be David's son? Because of Christmas. Because Jesus in the incarnation took on flesh, became a man. He condescended, left that area of his pre-incarnate glory and became a human being, fully God and fully man, through the womb of the Virgin Mary to enter into creation. And as such, he is, yes, David's son. But how is it then, if he's David's son, he could be David's Lord? It's because he wasn't just a man, but he was also God, indeed, Yahweh in flesh, born, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Why do these Christmas songs make sense? They make sense in light of who Christ is. So this royal bloodline comes through David, but it comes to a one who's greater than David, even though he's David's son. And this riddle is answered by the Trinity, God in three persons, and by Christmas, the incarnation. Thus, the line of significant sons is extended through David's prophecy unto the everlasting one. And David recognizes this priest king as the Davidic covenant fulfilled. So kids, a little review from Genesis. Remember, we've been tracking the line, connecting the dots of the significant sons. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Tragically, Abel the righteous died. Cain proved himself a murderer in the act. Where would the righteous son come from? Well, there was another son. Who was the significant son born to Adam and Eve, kids? That's correct, Seth. And Seth, I, I'm sorry, uh, is that correct? Yeah, Seth. And then Seth would eventually give way to Shem, the son of Noah. Shem eventually give way to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then we get up to, we recently touched upon Ruth the Moabite and Boaz. They had a son named, Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David. David had a son, 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 etc. named Jesus. That is correct. This is the royal bloodline. This line of significant sons extends by prophecy through history until there will be one who is singular in his pedigree, who is a victorious priest-king, who David himself recognizes superior to him. In fact, so much so, he is his Lord. So much so that he is a priest and a king of a different order, etc. Coronation. Jesus is Messiah by virtue of his royal bloodline, and this is evident in his kingliness, in his coronation. Secondly, this is evident in his ascension under coronation. Getting back to Psalm 110, there's key language. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, so that is to say, God the Father says to David's Lord, God the Son, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God the Father welcomes Jesus Christ to sit at his right hand. Question, when did that happen? When did Jesus arrive before the throne of God the Father to sit at his right hand? Someone shout it out. When did that happen? Adults, you can answer. Jesus went up. What is it called, kids? When? At his ascension. At the ascension of Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
He rose, as it were, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now note this in contrast to Psalm 109 and comparison. Verse 30. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. David also says, I will praise Him in the midst of the throng. And notice verse 31, positional language. For He stands at the right hand of the needy to save Him from those who condemn His soul to death. Again, you take these two psalms as a set, and this is what you get. What does it mean that Jesus Christ stands at the right hand of the needy? He stands as a legal advocate to prosecute the case against his enemies and those who have committed crimes against him. You remember, Stephen is, is uh, stoned to death, but unjustly so, by the religious leaders of his day. He sees the heavens open. And what does he see? Psalm 109 fulfilled in his case. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, rising in defense of his servant who has been unjustly killed by the wicked men of his day. How much more meaningful is it to realize that the, that the advocate who stands in your defense has sat down having accomplished and assumed a redemption and assumed the throne that is over all the kingdoms of the earth. This is the positional language of Scripture. To sit down means to assume your role and your authority as king. Imagine sitting on a glorious throne. Imagine sitting next to God the Father in all of His glorious majesty. And imagine receiving in that act as your inheritance all the kingdoms of the earth. Now these references are not just echoed in the New Testament, but throughout the Old as well. And a key reference comes to us in the book of Daniel. I'll turn there quickly. You can as well if you like. Daniel 7. I trust you're familiar with this text. In Daniel 7, a vision... A, a window of revelation is open to the prophet, Daniel, and as he looks, it says in verse 9, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who is the Ancient of Days? That is God the Father. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head pure as wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Who was the son of man? Who was the son of David? Who was David's Lord, yet David's son? Jesus Christ. Where did he come? He came to the Ancient of Days, verse 13, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the ascension of Jesus Christ, having fulfilled and accomplished redemption, prophesied in Daniel, prophesied by David in Psalm 110, and it is fulfilled in the beginning of the book of Acts when Jesus himself ascends before the right hand of the majesty on high as the author of Hebrews opens his book by declaring, Hallelujah! The Son of Man, by this coronation ceremony, is proven to be the Messiah by virtue of his kingship, by virtue of his authority, by virtue of his rule and reign. Some years ago, I was listening to one of my favorite preachers, Joe Moorcraft. And Pastor Moorcraft was preaching on the Ascension, and he said this, and it stuck with me. The Ascension is one of the, if not the, most neglected doctrines in the, new, in the uh, church today. Think of it. 
I think he's correct. Think of it. We often speak of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I have tried to make it a habit of adding ascension. When I comment on, think about, and confess the work of Christ in redemption, there is a significant moment that happens at the ascension that is often overlooked and overlooked to our own detriment. The answer to this question, what does it mean that Jesus ascended, can rush into your soul such confidence, such boldness, such assurance, and such victory that it can give you grace to withstand any kind of trial. Whether you're stoned like Stephen, whether you're under, suffering under a tyranny, whether you're a victim of a beast-like government, doesn't matter so long as you remember Christ has ascended. He lived. He died. He was buried. He rose again and he ascended as the Son of Man, as the Son of David, to receive his rightful inheritance in the glorious coronation ceremony of all of cosmic history. And the gift that was granted unto him by God the Father, the Ancient of Days, is absolute sovereignty over all the nations, kings, tribes, peoples, ethnicities, and eras of history in all the world for all time. Sit at my right hand. And I will make your enemies your footstool. 1 Corinthians 15 echoes as much. Daniel 7 reiterates the same. For, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 opens the prologue of the book uh, in unfolding these truths. Now we live in a day where there's a lot of tests and trials, do we not? If you watch the news and you think of the plight of, let's say, our religious liberties in the American context, it seems that we're in a precipitous decline. I'll admit to you that the temptation as a preacher, under conditions such as we live in culturally, the temptation is to preach only to what feels like an emergency. I mentioned this in prayer this morning. What feels like only, or what, what feels like a pressing emergency. But there's a danger in entertaining a mindset that fills in the blanks after this statement. Time is so short. And the stakes are so high, therefore this. And if that's the mindset and the only mindset that you approach the proclamation of God's word, you can mistakenly convey in the disposition of your soul, in your attitude, and in the emphasis of your preaching. I'm just using myself as an example, but it could be your attitude as well as a believer, that we are in a state of dire emergency and just moments away from catastrophic collapse. But what is missing in that confession? What is missing in that concern? The fact that Christ has ascended, quite possibly. And the perspective that that brings the suffering and enduring soul all the while. No matter what age of history we live in, even if we are entering an era of persecution, God knows, that does not change the fact that Christ has been enthroned by coronation ceremony before the right hand of the majesty on high and has received as his inheritance all the kingdoms of the earth. And he, saints, is exercising his dominion in multiple ways, in bringing judgment upon the rebels and bringing the gospel around the globe by his unlikely emissaries, perhaps you and me. But how much more boldness and confidence do we draw and our calling to glorify God, despite the time, despite where he leads us, when we realize that the earth is his, the fullness thereof, all the creatures therein, and every king is under his thumb, indeed, under his footstool. Amen? Coronation, finally, dominion. The Lord sets forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
royal bloodline, ascension, and dominion. Two words, terms, footstool and scepter, refer to Christ's dominion. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 25 expands on this idea. It says that Christ must reign until all enemies are placed under His feet. And during the time of the writing here in the ancient times, it was a common practice for kings who conquered another king. There would be, you know, uh, he would be down uh, on the ground before him, either dead or humiliated. And the conquering king would place his foot, you know, like on his neck. And it was a picture of absolute subjugation. And this is what is in view here. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your, uh, the Lord, or and then 1b, until your enemies, until I make your enemies your footstool. Two terms, footstool, the first, the second, mighty scepter. What is a scepter? Well, kids, you've seen those pictures of kings with a rod in his hand. In the scriptures, sometimes the scepter is referred to as a rod, and other times as an emblem of authority by the term scepter, depending on the translation. And in these instances, what we see here is a picture of the authority of Jesus Christ. This scepter, may I submit, is the rod of iron referred to in Psalm 2, with which Christ dashes the rulers of this age as so much earthen pottery. And the shards of the clay pots of the most formidable enemies of his kingdom scatter across the landscape of human history with one blow of his scepter. If you want to read the fallout of Christ's righteous judgments, if you want to see the power that he wields in his hand, turn to Revelation 2.27 on your own time, or 19.15-16. Here we have the picture in Revelation of the ascended Christ, ruling with this emblem of authority in his hand and wielding it as a weapon to absolutely decimate and, as Psalm 110 says, shatter the kingdoms, the kings of this earth. In so doing, we have a picture in Psalm 110 and verses 1 and 2 of the dominion of the second Adam, and it is superior. The authority and conquering force of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is more than the original Adam could ever think of accomplishing. You see, if Adam, the original Adam, was faithful in his dominion call, what would he do? He would be fruitful and multiply. He would subdue the earth. He would order creation as God has intended. But Adam sinned. He fell, and in him we all fell. And now creation doesn't have the same starting point. It needs to be redeemed before it can be ordered. It needs to be ransomed from the death grip of sin before it can be put aright again. And so the second Adam comes. And he exercises dominion superior to what the first Adam could ever hope to accomplish and utterly failed in trying Adam number one. Adam number two, Jesus Christ, not only takes dominion by ordering creation, but he dies in the place of sinners, redeems what was broken in the fall, and is moving all things according to his plan forward until such time as we embrace with him as believers the new heavens and the new earth. This is the dominion of the Messiah, exercised in his rule and reign. The son of David is Messiah by virtue of his kingship, his coronation by royal bloodline, by ascension, and by the exercise of his dominion. Major point number two. The son of David is Messiah by virtue of his consecration. What does consecration mean in the context here as I'm using it? Ordained as a priest. When a priest was called to serve in that office, Usually there would be some ceremony whereby he would be set apart and given the initiation rites. 
And so oil oftentimes, in the case of a king or a priest, would be applied. And there'd be a setting apart, a ceremony, an anointing, an ordination. And in a sense, Christ received an ordination as a high priest, as is prophesied in Psalm 110, and expounded so gloriously in the book of Hebrews. And as such, we see the results. David opens up with the results of Christ's priesthood in verse 3, and then he prophesies the order, he gives the, uh, the office, he expounds the office of Christ's priesthood in verse 4. First of all, speaking to Christ, he says the following of his priesthood. Your people, verse 3, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. By virtue of Christ's priesthood, he has secured for himself the loyal redeemed. Um, Imagine looking in a mirror, but the mirror is the scriptures or Jesus Christ. Um, In Corinthians, it uses this language. Imagine a spiritual mirror. You look into it, and you see the clothing that you are wearing. But in this spiritual mirror, the clothing that you are wearing is perfectly holy, perfectly white and resplendent and shining with the glorious righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, so long as this clothing is on, you are presentable before the marriage supper of the Lamb. So long as this clothing is on, you are worthy of the presence of an almighty God. So long as this clothing is on, it is proof that your sins have been cleansed away, though red as scarlet, they have been washed white as snow. And this garment of Christ's righteousness that you wear, as you see in that spiritual mirror, is proof positive of how he has transformed you on the inside. And just like, you know, you might have a good hair day, we used to call them. I don't know if that's still a phrase anymore. You look in the mirror and you get a little extra confidence. You know, I like what I'm seeing a little bit better with this. And then maybe you have an extra pep in your step, you know. We might be familiar with that kind of self-image, you know, giving us a little extra confidence. Well, imagine the spiritual confidence that is acquired when we look into the mirror of God's Word and we see that we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Well, what happens as a result? Number three, verse three. As a result, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. When the people of God realize how they have been transformed by the gospel, they race each other to the recruiting stations for the kingdom of God's great army. They run to volunteer for what their gospel call is. Because they know that if they can stand before a holy God justified, then they can stand before any lesser authority without fear. If they know that God has saved them from hell, then he will certainly save them from tyrants. If God has saved them uh, from the consequences of their own sin, then he will certainly give them eternal life unto glory, no matter the issues that they face. Where did Stephen get his confidence? As the stones were hitting his flesh one after another, Well, through the eyes of faith and by that glorious vision, he saw the Psalm 109 reality, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God rising in his defense. And he knew that son of man had given him robes of righteousness that would render him welcome through the gates of glory as soon as that last fatal stone struck his skull. And so it was Stephen, though facing this martyrdom, offered himself freely on the day of the Lord's power. Why? Because he was motivated realizing that he was clothed in holy garments. Something a priest 
the priest of priests, the high priest, can grant and can give. The loyal redeemed, the grateful atoned, when they through the gospel, even in the ordinances, you know, the Lord's table we celebrated last week, is something like a mirror. One of the intents of the Lord's table is that you would look upon it and realize in these elements is proof that the clothing that you wear to render you presentable before a holy God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And thus, having taken communion, you can now, realizing its purpose and intent, be that much more bold as the loyal redeemed, as the grateful atoned, volunteering for God's service and call, no matter what that may be. Resurrection and regeneration. Curious poetic language in the end of three. says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Commentators are divided on the meaning here, but I believe we can say at least this. There's two poetic metaphors, womb and dew, that are referred to here. In the Near East, the dew, uh, pe uh, people say, would be sometimes so thick that it would be as if it had rained that night. And it appeared all of the sudden, spontaneously, as it were, in the morning. So it became a metaphor of a miraculous, life-giving source. Dew speaks to miraculous, life-giving source. You know, the provision for the people of God in the wilderness appeared like dew in the morning, similarly speaking. The dew of manna, as it were, a miraculous, life-giving source, was a picture of regeneration, if you will. A picture of new life, a picture of eternal life, a picture of a miraculous provision that didn't have an ordinary source. Something independent of the land or the people in their works that provided for them or that provided for him, them what was necessary to sustain the region, to sustain themselves. And similarly, so that would be like resurrection, you could say, I suppose. After the death of night, there's a dawn of the morning, and you have a resurrection of life available in the provisions of the Lord. Second picture or metaphor is womb. And from womb, of course, comes new birth. Well, a once for all high priest, by virtue of his indestructible life, according to the book of Hebrews, has the power to both raise the dead and to birth anew. That is to say, Psalm 110.3 describes the results of Christ's priesthood. Because Christ is the perfect high priest, and he is high, uh, the high priest by virtue, as the author says, of his indestructible life, he's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, he has the power to birth you anew and to raise you from the dead. And what's the proof of this? It was pictured in baptism recently. He raised himself from the dead. From the womb, as it were, uh, Christ arose, or uh, from the uh, death of, of the tomb, as it were, Christ arose. There is new life at the dawn of the third day over his tomb. So as the dawn arose over the tomb of Jesus Christ, there was new life in the morning. And so, it is, so there is new life at the dawn of the gospel over the tomb of our hearts, as it were, such that the high priest that we have, the Lord, who is or the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Lord, the one who is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one who is David's uh, Son, yet David's Lord, who bears a scepter and the earth is his footstool, who clothes us in garments, he, because of his priesthood, uh, has the power of resurrection and has the power of regeneration within his being. And thus, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth shall be yours. And again, commentators are divided. Does that refer to the Messiah or does that refer to his people? And may I submit the answer is yes. 
Is the dew of the youth and the womb of the morning, does that re, is that something we can relate to? Yes. Is it something that the Messiah experienced? Yes. And so let me leave you with that and move on. Resurrection, regeneration gives way to Melchizedekian priesthood. Again, the son of David is Messiah by virtue of his consecration, ordained as a priest. He, as, as a priest, he has, gleaned, he has gained for himself the loyal redeemed. As a priest, he has secured resurrection and regeneration power. And as a priest, he is a unique individual, the only one who could fulfill the office. And this is how it's described in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ has secured the office of Melchizedekian priesthood, if you will. And you'll recall, I trust from our Genesis studies, some of the unique aspects of Melchizedek. The scriptures use him at least as an object lesson because he is recorded without lineage. And literally speaking, in the context of the, of the scripture, the record there, it's as if he's there all of a sudden, as if he had no beginning and no end. And this is a personification of the Melchizedekian priesthood. In other words, the priesthood of old is insufficient, partially because the priest would die in office. Hebrews tells us this. How will you know that the perfect high priest is there serving in the temple, as it were? Well, he would have to have eternal life. Well, if he was eternal, could he come from the loins of Aaron? Could he come by the way of the Levites? No. He had to be of a different order and lineage. He had to be of singular pedigree. And this victorious priest king had to be, therefore, one according to the order of Melchizedek. Almost exactly five years ago, we were in Hebrews, and I preached on Hebrews 7, 1 through 11. I reviewed that message this week. And my four main points were these. Melchizedek personifies the following, according to Hebrews 7. Number one, a higher order, which we've mentioned. Number two, king and priest. He was both king and priest, just like Jesus. Number three, righteousness and peace. How can we have peace with God and him still be righteous? Well, it's answered by Paul in Christ. He's the just and the justifier of our sins. And then finally, son of God and son of man. A higher order a king and priest, righteousness and peace, son of God and son of man. And this is established with this confidence, with this certification of authenticity. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And again, we can draw imagery to underscore this truth and the significance of God swearing an oath by, from Genesis 15. That's where a self-harm oath is actually taken on by God himself to promise to Abraham that I will be destroyed before I break my word. A staggering display of the certainty of covenant that God himself swore to. He entered into solemn covenantal agreement and swore to himself that he will not change his mind. And he did not. The enemy of our souls all through human history has sought to stamp out the seed. Was he successful? No. Herod could not stamp out even though he tried to kill everyone of eligible age in Bethlehem. Pharaoh, though he threw the babies into the river in this early abortion mirror uh, uh, event and so forth, taking out his war on the vehicle of the incarnation as an agent of the seed of the serpent, trying to kill the one who would come, as it were, was unsuccessful. 
Moses was preserved through water. Jesus escaped into Egypt. And these just two examples, how the enemy was unsuccessful and why was he unsuccessful? Ultimately because God swore that there would be a seed of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. That the line of the significant sons would continue unbroken until a priest arose after the order of Melchizedek. And as such, he would be of that higher order, both king and priest. Righteousness and peace would meet in his redemptive work, and he would be son of God and son of man, David's son and David's Lord. The second person of the Trinity, the ascended one receiving his inheritance, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Final point this morning. The son of David is Messiah by virtue of his coronation, the fact that he's king. Consecration, the fact that he's priest. And finally, conquest, the fact that he is victorious. Notice the exploits of our victorious priest king. Notice the realms and kingdoms he is conquering even now as we close with verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. That is to say, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Realms and kings conquered. The conquests of our Messiah, Christ as victor, the son of David, Messiah by virtue of his conquering power, evident in history and even now as he rules and reigns and is placing his enemies under his footstool. There are two phrases, or there is a phrase repeated twice in Psalm 110, and it's this, on the day. In 110.5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings, quote, on the day of his wrath. So the day of his wrath. This is parallel to verse 3, where people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Here, poetically uh, emphasized by this repeated phrase, is David's understanding and celebration that God has appointed specific times and seasons, particular events to accomplish his will in history. That is to say, a hero arises on the occasion at the appointed time. At the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman, not a moment late, not a moment early. Unto you is born this day a child who is Christ the Lord at the exact moment, on the day of God's sovereign ordination. And this is a concept through history, the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the appointing of His judgment, and it is always an appointment of salvation for His people. Unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And correspondingly or uh, uh, conversely, it is an appointment of judgment for His enemies. Don't you think that the days of Herod's reign, that the writing was on the wall, the day that Jesus was born, for the shepherds, it represented the glorious truth of eternal life opened up for them. For Herod, it represented that he would be shattered as a king of the earth. Kids, how did God shatter Herod? How did God shatter Herod? You remember what happened to him? Worms ate him. So Herod's out there. He's receiving the people of the north, whatever, the Capernaum region or something. He had given them some entitlement money. And so they'd receive some breads or circuses or something like that. And so Herod's out there, you know, and he's receiving the accolades of the people. Oh, you're our favorite politician, the voice of a God and not of a man. 
and God struck him dead. He shattered that king and he was eaten by worms, as I always like to think. The least of the creatures took dominion over the once great king. A tiny worm declared that they were sovereign over the great king and ate him from the inside out, thus fulfilling Psalm 110 that Jesus is Lord and every imposter will be a shattered chief, will be a corpse scattered upon the landscape of history and will be shattered on the day of his wrath. When Jesus Christ was born, it signaled the doom of Herod and the salvation of the shepherds. Simeon and Anna, for them, it was a day they could die in peace now knowing that they had seen their Savior face to face. But for Herod, it mean that he would die in horrific, humiliating, judgmental infamy because the king was about to take authority over every ruler, imposter, and false claim on this earth and just watch the fallout as the rebels continued to line up with their glutton for the king of kings punishment as they declare that they are some rightful ruler independent of him. Not so, and history records the day of their judgment. Whose name makes you shudder? There's a few names that make me shudder sometimes if I admit it. You've heard the name George Soros. Does that make you shudder sometimes? Oh, man, the wickedness that a guy like that is able to enact by his worldview and the money at his disposal it's a name that makes me shudder sometimes. Recently, you guys have probably heard of the Great Reset. Another name, the guy who wrote it or uh, uh, was quoted as postulating this idea of a new world order reset, Klaus Schwab. He's a name that makes some of us shudder. Let me give you a couple other names. Let me ask you if they make you shudder. Sennacherib. Do you shudder at the name Sennacherib when you hear it? No, why not? Because he was shattered. You remember what happened to his army? 185,000 killed overnight. 185,000 killed overnight. Nebuchadnezzar, does that name make you shudder? No. Why? Because he woke up one day eating grass until seven periods of time passed over him until God basically forced him to admit that he was sovereign and Lord. Jeffrey Epstein, does that name make you shudder? Not anymore. The man was humiliated and died. Who knows who did it? Nevertheless, as far as we know, anyways, he's dead. If he's not, he's will be, depending on the uh, uh, conspiracy theory you might subscribe to. Point being, names that make us shudder today, think of it in the scope of history. There were names that made people shudder then. I'm sure Mary and Joseph shuddered at the name of Herod. I'm sure faithful Christians in uh, Nazi Germany shuddered at the name of Hitler. And there, as I've referenced, there's people whose name make us shudder today. What do we need to be reminded of in this situation? There is coming a day when names that make us shudder will be absolutely destroyed. Why? Because the Lord is at the right hand of the mighty God, the awesome one, the majestic in power enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Furthermore, he will adjudicate his rule. Uh, next week, Lord willing, Isaiah 9 will be our passage, and there you will find that the government of this baby born in Bethlehem is upon the shoulders of a child born and a king given. Unto him, unto us is born this day, a child, a government shall be upon his shoulders, and so forth we read in that passage. What does this mean? This means that in the end, all who beg to differ with his authority will feel the weight and authority of true government crushing down upon their heads, which Jesus bears upon his shoulders. When wielded in judgment upon the nations, he will fill them with corpses. If the government is upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, 
Who stands a chance to oppose him? And the answer is no one. Because he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. In Christ's conquest, we have appointed day. And many of these appointed days have come. And appointed, and appointed days have yet to come. The final judgment, for instance. We have the adjudication of his reign. The fact that he will bring everyone into submission under his feet. And finally, we have reference to sufficiency and glory. Notice verse 7. He, speaking of the great priest, king, Messiah. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What could this mean? Brook by the way, let me suggest, speaks to sustaining him in his call. If he is on his call and on mission, if he drinks from the brook by the way, it's a reference to sufficiency or sustenance. That is to say, sufficiency and glory are in view as we close our text today. The brook by the way, Christ is sustained in his call, even that call unto drinking the cup of God's wrath, which is for the satisfaction of our sins. Once again, the commentators are divided. Um, what sustains Christ on the way? Is this a refreshing drink that gives him strength to endure the call? Or is this a drink of the sufferings that he has called? Well, perhaps both can be in view and both speak to sufficiency. That is, because God sustained Christ in his call to bear the weight of our sins, along the way we have salvation. And because he had grace to bear the cup of God's wrath, let this cup depart from me, nevertheless, not your will, but mine be done. Christ's work is sufficient for us. So Psalm 110 closes, emphasizing this poetic language, the sufficiency of the work of Christ, and finally his glory. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now this is a reference to dignity, lifting up his head. How was Christ's head lifted up? Though his head was laid low in the grave, it was lifted up by resurrection. Though his head hung low on Calvary, suffering the weight of crucifixion, and the false accusations of the people, and the shame of that kangaroo trial. Nevertheless, his head was lifted as he received his glorious throne to adjudicate the sins of those who crucified him, and he did so at A.D. 70 by destroying the political order and the place where the crucifixion, took, uh, where the crucifixion event happened. And so Christ lifted up his head in judgment giving just retribution and recompense upon those who unjustly took his life on Calvary's hill. And though Christ was laid low in the incarnation, unwrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger, nevertheless, he would ascend as King of kings and Lord of lords to receive that which was rightfully his. In closing, we could say it this way. Christ, in lifting up his head, we have pictured here glorious resurrection, Ascension and session. Session means to rule and to reign. Ascension, to ascend before the Father. Resurrection, to rise from the dead. Resurrection, ascension, and session. By these, Christ's head was lifted. Think of it this way, given that it's Christmas time. The little one, the little one, bound up in swaddling clothes, appearing so helpless and confined. Think of that picture. We have little Hugo, our two-month-old baby, and when he's in swaddling clothes, there's no hope for his escape. He's helpless and he's confined in those clothes. Jesus was there once. This little one bound up in swaddling clothes, appearing so helpless and confined. 
And even furthermore, the buried Jesus, bound in grave clothes behind a stone, appearing so hopeless and defeated. Psalm 110 nevertheless assures us, things are not as they appear. And these two instances prove it. The son of David, the victorious priest king, he throws off the swaddling clothes, he throws off the grave clothes to secure his inheritance of the kingdoms of this earth, saving his people and shattering his enemies as he sits enthroned forever at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in this way, the head of Jesus and Jesus lifts, is lifted and Jesus lifts his own head. Gone are the swaddling clothes. Gone are the grave clothes. And all that remains is the ascended, resurrected, and ruling and reigning Savior who will return to gather his own and to punish his enemies once and for all on his appointed day. Let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power and authority of Christ our Lord. We thank you that in the virtues and the beauty of who he is, that there is an absolute, singular, glorious, preeminent reality of a victorious priest-king revealed to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see your gospel. I pray that you would use the proclamation of your word to open our eyes further, open our hearts wider, and open our ears to hear more loudly the glories of Christ revealed. We pray that as Christ is revealed to us in glory, as we behold him, that we consequently would be transformed into his image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. And we also pray that as we have grace and confidence, looking upon our clothing, our holy garments, as we have grace and confidence to announce the King of Kings, that you would cause the nations, peoples, unbelievers, sinners, to bow before the presence of the resurrected, ascended, and reigning King of Kings, that they might find Him to be a glorious hope on the day of His return. Nevertheless, Lord, I pray in the meantime, whether you give us a great harvest, nevertheless, that you would find us faithful so that you, upon your return, will find a bride with more blemishes and spots erased and more glory reflected through our changing lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.